Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 28th, 2011. Cannot believe that tomorrow is March. (laughs) Things kind of move quickly nowadays. Eh, Maybe just that I'm getting old, creeping decrepitude. Every time you go around the sun... The next circuit seems to go just a smidge quicker. What a mess. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Something that's on my mind. You're going to hear this in our sermon review today. But uh, more and more I'm noticing that um, pastors and teachers, especially in the seeker-driven and purpose-driven camps, it, it, it's amazing to me, this this habit that these uh, guys are, are into. And it's and it, it's I, I even think that they're blind to it. But it... it I was, you know, see, here's the deal. I was listening to a Mark Batterson speech that, you know, that he gave to a group of uh, pastors. It was at a pastor's conference. Uh, the name of the, uh, the, ch- of the conference was Innovate Church, and, and then they've renamed it this year. The name of it is Refuel. And uh, last year, Batterson was one of the speakers. And uh, it, the, uh, the lecture itself didn't make the cut as far as something I wanted to review here on the program. But it was fascinating to me to, I mean, to just watch, because um, there was a video and I was watching it, to watch what he did. And it was like, let, let me give you an example of it. I mean, let me just pick a text randomly out of the scriptures and uh, we'll go from there. Um, let's, I, I don't know what's in this passage, but uh, let's um, let's go to uh, Luke chapter 12. Luke, Luke chapter 12. I'll just give you an example of it. This is Roseboro's uh, rendition of it, but uh, it's it's an interesting thing. If I were to... Um, Luke chapter 12, I'll start at what, verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, to, uh, he began, that's Jesus, began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Uh, okay, I've just read one verse. So what they would do is they would, you know, they'll say, we're going to read our passage, uh, Luke uh, chapter 12, 1 through 8, you know, whatever. So you read one verse. Uh, I just finished one verse. And then I'm going to say, and now let me tell you about my weekend. Um, it, see, this weekend, um, I, you know, I was really busy with family and other things and uh, had, a, had a wonderful opportunity to spend some time with my uh, uh, with my daughter. She was uh, in a tall flag uh, winter guard competition. And uh, it was funny, we, you know, we traveled up to Anderson uh, Indiana, and uh, there was a high school that they were at, and the and the and the, the mascot for the team was the Scots. And you're sitting there, why are you telling tell me about this, Chris? Oh, I, I'm teaching you the Bible right now, and so yeah, I'm I'm actually teaching you about Luke chapter 12, verse one. So you know, just hang hang in there, you know. And and so I, you know, as I, as I was looking at the outside of this gymnasium, and I saw the um, the mascot, the Scots. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, wow, you know. With all the uh, political correct guys out there, you know, saying that you can't name a, a sports team after, you know, a Native American tribe or uh, you have to be careful, uh, you know, to, that you don't pick an endangered species, you know, or to name your high school after. I was thinking, you know, I, what, I was wondering if the people in Scotland would be actually offended uh, knowing that there's a high school in Anderson, uh, Indiana. That has, you know, that their their school mascot is the Scots, you know, and there's a guy with a kilt and a bagpipe and all that kind of stuff. It makes me you know, wonder, you know, in today's politically correct, in, in, what does this have to do with anything, Chris? No, no, I'm teaching you the Bible right now, and see, it's all about my life, right? And, and so these are the things that were coming to my mind, and uh, and, and <laughs> all right, enough. You, you, you kind of get the point that I'm making over and over and over again. I am amazed at how these guys crack open a Bible, read a verse, and then launch into something about their lives. I mean, it'd be like me trying to teach you Luke chapter 12 by giving you a summary of my weekend. It, it just, just doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. And so, you know, Batterson does this, Furtick does this, Perry Noble does this. Um, yeah, I'm actually uh, getting ready to do a Perry Noble sermon review I'm not sure if I, it'll make the cut, you know, this week or next week, but uh, it's, it's I, I've got it queued up for a, a particular day. And what I'm going to basically do during this Perry Noble sermon review, since he, I mean, he brags about how everything he does is all about leading people to Jesus. Um, all I'm going to simply do is I'm going to uh, I'm going to run a timer. I'm going to run two timers during the sermon review. I'll do my normal interrupting, but what I'm going to do is since he claims that all the things that he does, you know, it's, you know, quit complaining about my methods. We got to do church differently. This is all about people meeting Jesus, and we're just going to ask. We're just going to use a timer, a simple timer, to determine whether or not Perry Noble preached more about himself, or if he preached about Jesus. It. it this is you know no. There's this is just something objective, not subjective. So at the end of it, I'm going to say. Perry Noble told stories about himself and the and the amount of the storytelling that he told about himself and his life, his ideas, was X amount of minutes. And the amount of time that Perry Noble preached about Jesus was X about amount of minutes. Now, it just so happens that uh, I know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, you know, how many minutes uh, Perry Noble preaches about himself as opposed to preaching about Jesus. I've actually gone through and done a dry run to kind of, you know, get it. And uh, let me just say this. Let me just say this. When uh, when I do this sermon review, um, the comparison is stark. Um, 
if Perry Noble were to say that he really preaches about Jesus, um, I've got objective proof that says, no, he doesn't preach about Jesus. Perry Noble preaches about Perry Noble. Stephen Furtick preaches about Stephen Furtick. Mark Batterson, well, he preaches about Mark Batterson uh, and also, you know, killing lions. Um, yeah, and over and over and over again, it's, it, and here's the deal, I I think these folks are absolutely blind to it. They're absolutely blind. Um, it, it Maybe this is a result of just bad small group Bible studies. I don't know. But, um, you know, because, I mean, what, what happens in those small group studies, right? You know, uh, from the time, you know, kids are in, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, they go to Bible studies or they go to youth group or whatever, and somebody opens up a Bible and, and they read a couple of verses and then they share. And the sharing goes, and what does this verse mean to you? And then, they, and then somebody says, oh, well, this verse means to me X, Y, or Z. You know, and so they think, because this is what they've been trained to do in these small group studies, that that the right way to handle God's word is to find your story in it, to uh, you know, to e- explain to the group and share what this verse means to you, and and ultimately, what happens is is that when a church has a pastor, the pastor's job is to then model how you then take a Bible verse and twist it so that it's all about you. Right? Yeah, this I mean it it's this is becoming more and more obvious to me that this is what's going on. And uh rare is the uh, is the pastor. Hard to find is the pastor who will open up a text and do the hard work to convey to you what the text is really saying, who the text is really about. Is it about me? Or is it about Jesus? You know, which reminds me, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter four. I'm kind of winging it at the moment, but I wanted to. Um, um I wanted to uh, read a section from the Book of Acts to you to kind of point something out here. Um, over and over again, I am amazed by the fact that the apostles, um, the who, the the guys who wrote the New Testament. Um, they seem to pretty much be obsessed with talking about Jesus. And, um, yeah, to the point where, I mean, it, I mean, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to the Corinthian church, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified for our sins. And I think he meant that. And uh, if, if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read probably most of the chapter. And I just want to focus, uh, I want to k- kind of key in on this. And and how the uh, the apostles really don't talk about themselves so much, uh, and even the details of the story that are given here in Acts chapter four, they're just details to tell you about the things that they were doing when they were telling everybody about Jesus, and for real, actually telling people about Jesus. Acts chapter four verse one. Now, as they were speaking the pe- uh, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming. That in Jesus the uh, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and so they arrested them and they put them in custody until uh, until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed the num and the number of the men uh, came to about five thousand. So you get about five thousand men Christians, and that does not count the women Christians at this point. 
And on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They had performed a miracle. So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done by a, uh, done to a crippled man, they healed him. Uh, actually, God did. But uh, by what uh, and what by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name, by the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which men must be saved. Um. Did Peter sit there and say, hey, you know, listen, I I figured out the keys to momentum here, and I've figured out how to perform miracles, and yeah, and and boy, look at, I mean, you too can have a victorious life, or you too can have an exciting, purpose-driven life, and I'm going to get up here, and I'm going to use this time to vision cast, and, you know, and uh, none of the above. I mean, um, Peter seems to be singularly obsessed with telling everybody about Jesus, and then went even so far as to tell the chief priests that they're the ones who crucified him. So anyway, and then he says that there's salvation in no one else except for Jesus. And Peter was always constantly talking about Jesus and not himself. Anyway, um, verse 13, And so when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with um, Jesus. Yeah. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they they had nothing to say in opposition, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do uh, with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Yet notice this, Okay. Here, you know, in, in the what you missed in the immediate context is that you know Peter and John healed a guy, a, a crippled guy. This was the whole silver and gold. I don't have anything, but what I do have, I tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise, you know, take, pick up your mat and walk. You know, so the crippled guy was healed, and so now they're on trial for it, and um, and they are obsessed with telling everybody about Jesus. And here, the uh, chief priests and the ruling council, and the, they can't deny that a miracle had taken place. Uh, but what they want the disciples to stop doing, okay? Yeah, verse 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whatever is right in the sight of God, uh, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or, or, or to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had uh, they had further threatened them, they uh, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the chief priests want Peter and John and the disciples to stop 
preaching about Jesus, to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, to stop telling everyone that salvation can be found in no one else except for Jesus. And and all that Peter and John were going to do was talk about Jesus. And they even said, uh, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep talking about Jesus. And they actually, well, did that. They didn't preach about themselves. In fact, you can't find any instances of Peter's sermons where he goes, and so let me tell you, the other day I was, you know, I was out driving my mule down the Central Boulevard in uh, in Jerusalem, and I was thinking to myself, self, you know, uh, it sure is great to have this high luxury, high performance mule that, uh, and you know, it's all a ministry aid, and he doesn't do, he doesn't talk about himself. He talks about Jesus, and yet when you listen to these guys, they they you know they flash a verse up or a couple of verses up on their PowerPoint slides during their sermons, and then proceed to completely ignore the passage and then begin talking about themselves. I mean, it's it's almost as if they're little messiahs or they're little Christ. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, today's sermon review, by the way, is uh, is an example of this. Stay tuned for hour number two today. We're going to be reviewing a sermon uh, by uh, Pastor Buddy uh, Cremens of uh, what's his church? Hang on, um, Northway Church. It's in it's in New York. You know he, he uh, so funny. He recently put out a video, a rap video. Uh, the the name of the sermon series, by the way, is just for the health of it. Health and uh, just for the health of it. Yeah, I, you got to make sure that yeah you know, people don't mishear you. He didn't. Yeah, you, know, you, you understand what I'm saying, but. Uh, um, he, the sermon you're going to hear today, it's the the sermon text is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter I think sixteen or seventeen. I forget offhand, but it's the Transfiguration passage. Okay, Jesus is transfigured before them, and he, Buddy, then turns this into I don't know what. I mean, you, I mean, it's like he, it's like he has an open Bible, but what, what he doesn't preach about Jesus. He psychologizes everything. And ends up preaching about themselves, but for the uh, just for the health of it. That's that's just for the health of it. Uh, a series, Pastor Buddy put out a rap song uh, about the Daniel fast. Yeah, here's a, here we'll premiere it here. Here's a Pastor Buddy, one of these seeker driven guys, and just for the health, health, health of it, Pastor Buddy Crimmins. And uh, for the video, he's jogging. He's dressed up like Rocky with that uh, same, uh, you know, gray sweat outfit with the cap and all that kind of stuff. And he's jogging up the steps of the uh, of the Capitol there in Philadelphia. Oh boy! And he, he looks like he's a man of girth, like my myself. But uh, we continue. Yeah, Pastor Buddy, y'all. Coming straight from the city of brotherly love, Philly. Check it. Daniel diet, almost cause a riot. It's about fasting, vision casting for the everlasting. Vision casting for the everlasting. <sighs> yeah, I'm not hearing anything about Jesus here. No meats, no sweets for three whole weeks. Gonna make a lot more room in the shade. Lord, grant me the strength that I may not fall into the clutches of cholesterol. At 
just come to save your soul. Notice, got to de-emphasize that whole salvation thing so that we can uh, make Christianity relevant to you. To make you whole. Daniel Diet, almost caused a riot. It's about fasting, vision casting for the everlasting. Take this lesson so you can be a blessing. Redirect your appetite, live by faith, not by sight. Open my eyes, I make see all the Plans you have for me. Craft me a clean heart, chicken, a new star. More time in God's work, things I've never seen or heard. All about a breakthrough, making my spirit new. A better glimpse of heaven in 2011. Honor God with your body, you can be a hottie. Yeah, this is a Christian message, apparently. It's not about vanity. It's not about vanity. Keep the sanity. All about now, you, you can be a better you. Do logistics for the health of it. Yeah, that's uh, Pastor Buddy. Uh, we're going to be hearing a sermon from him today. Yeah, from the Just for the Health of It. And I, I kid you not, he's going to be supposedly preaching uh, from a text from the Gospel of Matthew regarding the Transfiguration. And by the time he's done with it, yeah, you, you, he'll immediately take the, the focus and emphasis off of Christ and throw it squarely onto you. Again, um, yeah, what was it the uh, Michael Horton from the White House Sin called this textual narcissism? Textual narcissism is what he called it. Um, yeah, and, you know, this is a growing, growing problem. Folks, the Bible's not about you. I, I'm sorry, the uh, it's not. The role that you play is uh, address E. The Bible is addressed to you, and you are part of rebel humanity, uh, the part of humanity who rebelled against God and uh, and has disobeyed, dishonored Him, hate Him, uh, doesn't don't want to have anything to do with Him. And the good news, the the ultimate good news is the Bible tells the story of what Jesus has done for you in order to secure a pardon from God. And that he's calling rebel humanity and sinners like you and like me to repent of their sins and be forgiven. Right. So that they can be saved. All this other stuff, this is all just bright and shiny distractions. And they these guys think that they're actually proclaiming the timeless message of Christ. They're not. They're preaching themselves. And it uh, this textual narcissism is just uh, it's just off the chain bad. It's just 
Anyway, it's one of these things that, you know, as I, you know, in preparing for the program today and doing the research I've been doing lately, just over and over and over again, these guys open up with a passage or they'll read a passage and then immediately take a hard left or or right turn and just steer completely off of it so they can talk about themselves. That's not Christianity and that's not faithfully handling God's word. And what gets lost? Christ and him crucified for our sins. Anyway, we're up on our first break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be hearing from Patricia King and Marcus Borg. Uh, You're not going to want to miss it. Like I've said, it's sermon review hour number two today. We're going to be listening to uh, Pastor Buddy sermon, so you're not going to want to miss that from his just for the health, the health of it, health, h e h e l t h, health of it. Um, yeah, uh, sermon series. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, when you have a pastor read a passage and then tell you all about himself, he's not actually teaching you what the Bible says. You need to run. When that pastor does that, get out of that church quick before he sends you to hell. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you know, a different amount rather than the six ninety five. You can make a one time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. Yeah, I know that it's already almost March. But the latest video from Patricia King is, in call, is called Increased Favor Will Visit You This Year. I, I'm glad that this came out now because um, two months are already gone in 2011. I mean, there's only 10 months left for this year. And so I, I was worried that without you know this video coming out when it did, I mean, you might have missed the, all the incredible favor that God is apparently going to visit you with this year. Here's Patricia King to give you the details. Here, here we go. This year, the favor of the Lord is going to increase upon your life. The favor of God is going to open doors for you. The favor of God is going... That's awful polite of God to open doors for me. You know, I I often do that for uh, women when I, you know, like... If I go to the store, to the bank, or you know, if I'm out and about, and you know, I'm walking in, and, there, and there's a there's a gal behind me, you know, oftentimes I'll open the door for her. Yeah, so it's awful nice that God's going to do that for me. I I'm pretty excited. I mean, looking forward to having the doors automatically open for me. Thanks, God. Yeah. Going to give you promotion this year. I want you to believe this. I want you to take hold of this because whatever you believe on the inside of you will create words that flow out of your mouth that then create a realm of influence around you. (laughs) Really? Hey, well, that's pretty fanciful. Hang on a second here. I got (laughs) got to back this up. I wow! Hey, hang on. You to take hold of this, okay? Because whatever you believe, right? So whatever I believe on the inside of you. 
you will. So whatever I believe on the inside of me, got it? Will create words that flow out of your mouth. That so whatever I believe on the inside of me will create words that then will then flow out of my mouth. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Then create a realm of influence around you. That then creates a realm of influence around me. Um, yeah, um, I am, you know, I'm just not familiar at all with any passage in the Bible that says anything even remotely close to this. Um, where are the big realm of influence passages found in the Bible? Well, let's see, maybe she'll answer that. Yeah. Do you want a realm of favor to walk in? Um, so, so, uh, I, a realm of favor to walk in. So it is, you know, I, you know what? I remember when I was a kid, that, what was that program that was on? That uh, was an ABC. There was a special movie, a made for TV movie about the boy in the plastic bubble. It's a sad story, too. Um, but, um, yeah, if I remember correctly, I mean, the poor kid ended up walking out of his plastic bubble. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't look like his fate was very good. Anyway, um, but that it was a long time ago, and you know maybe i'm I'm not remembering the the end of the story correctly so um if i speak if I believe something in my heart, then I speak words that creates a realm of influence that's around me that I can walk in, kind of like the you know the uh, the bacterial free plastic bubble zone from that movie, the Boy in the plastic bubble. okay, throughout this entire year, you can have it. So, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I gotta back this up a smidge. It's only for a year? There's only 10 months left in 2011. I mean, if I'm gonna take, if I'm gonna go through all the trouble of, you know, believing something in my heart and then speaking words and then creating this realm of influence and, you know, around me like the plastic bubble, um, don't you think I would want it to, to last a little longer than the 10 months that remain in the in 2011? But let's A favor to walk in throughout this entire year? You can have it. Because God has given you his favor as a gift. The Only for this year. Well, hmm. The same favor that the Father has over the Son belongs to you. It does, really? And where does it say that in the Bible? The favor the Father has for Jesus Christ is the favor that's been given to you by gift. You are favored with undeserved, unmerited favor. A favor that will... Notice, notice this isn't the forgiveness of sins. This isn't being covered in the righteousness of Christ. Apparently, this is favor, something that I can then speak into existence. That Then as I speak these words, it creates a, a, a plastic bubble of favor around me that I can walk around in. Open doors, a favor that will offer you uh, promotion in this year. This really? Okay, yeah. This favor will endure for a lifetime. This favor will cause your mountain to stand. This favor... The, this, I don't have a mountain. Um, hmm. You know, I, I live in Indiana, um, Patricia, and uh, here's the problem. It's, it's pretty flat out here. There's cornfields. Yeah, I, in fact, I don't own a mountain. Not in Indiana. In fact, not even in any of the mountainous states. Hmm. Will surround you like a shield of protection, according to Psalm 512. It's awesome. Psalm 512. Hang on a second here. Let's 
see if I have a mountain given to me in Psalm 512. Psalm 5. Let's read this in context. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, and you hate all evildoers. Uh, You destroy those who speak lies, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. (laughs) Hang on a second, did I hear this verse right? Hang on a second here, Patricia, I gotta back you up, hold on. To Psalm 512. Oh, Psalm 12. I got it there. Okay, Psalm 512. Got to keep reading. Okay, so the boastful, you shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Uh, you destroy those who speak lies. <clears throat> like Patricia King. Uh, the Lord abhors the blood for thirsty and the deceitful man. But I love the abundance of your steadfast love. Uh, will en- will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is uh, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Yeah, uh, kind of interesting that God here says that uh, deceivers flatter with their tongue. Uh, make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover them with favor as with a shield. Hmm. So, yeah, okay, okay. So So God covers the righteous with his favor as with a shield. The, the righteous. Um, that kind of begs the question, um, are you righteous in and of yourself? I mean, you know, because if you're not righteous, well, then the Lord is not going to cover you with his shield of favor because there does seem to be some kind of a contingent here. You, be, you need to be part of the righteous. Yeah, and then you read Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul basically saying that he doesn't want to be found having a righteousness of his own that comes to the law, but the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to him as a gift. But uh, Patricia King just kind of says, you know, she's noticed that this particular video isn't addressed to any particular person. I mean, any atheist schlub could have been watching this video, and she's declaring to the atheist schlub that he's he's got a, you know, he can... Have God's favor this year. And by the way, this kind of like begs the question: Was Psalm chapter five, verse twelve, specifically a promise only for the last ten months of the year twenty eleven? Not seeing that in the text, but uh, let's continue. Here we go. It's awesome, and it's yours. The Lord has spoken to me so clearly about the provision of favor and how much we need it to operate in our lives, how much we need it for those doors to be open and for divine appointments with the law so that we can have favor in the nations, even before government officials and transform nations for the glory of God, because we have been given favor. Daniel had favor with the king. 
Joseph had favor. No matter what happened to him, if he was thrown into a pit, a dungeon, a jail, whatever, he would always surface with a favor and ultimately got to influence nations and rescue nations due to that favor. That favor God wants to clothe you with. I see in my spirit, in my mind's eye right now. Where did you see it? Hmm. Run. Um, a a uh, tunic. It's just like the tunic that, that uh, in the Bible we see Joseph got this multicolored tunic from his father. I see that in the spirit being put upon you. And it- really? Uh, so I apparently, I don't know who she's addressing. So- how many people does this apply to? It symbolizes multiple levels of favor over you. Take hold of this. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, because here, you know, when you uh, when I read Psalm chapter 5, talking about the deceivers and those who are unrighteous, he says, there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hmm. Sounds a lot like Patricia King here, flattering with her tongue here. uh, But she's not really at at this point even talking about God's word. Apparently, she she sees in her spirit mind that you are being clothed with this tunic. Hmm. Does she know what you look like? I don't think she's ever met me. I don't know. Hmm. Be an influencer with the favor of God. If you meditate on the favor of God, meditate on what's already been given to you uh-huh. in the Lord, yeah. then you'll start to speak about it. You'll start to yeah. expect it. Yeah, and then you'll create the boy in the plastic bubble zone of favor around you that you can walk around in. You'll start to embrace it. And if you expect it, it'll come to you. Yeah, that's all you got to do is expect it. Then boom, it just comes right to you because you you spoke it. Because it was in your heart, and then you created the bubble of favor around you. Uh, yeah. Maybe we should just move along. Um, I wanted to play a little bit more of Marcus Borg for you all uh, from the uh, Big Tent Christianity Conference. And Marcus Borg, uh, you know, the question has been emailed to me a couple of times now. The question is, did... Um, uh, you know, is Marcus Borg really saying that God isn't personal? The answer, yes, God is not only not personal, but uh, according to Marcus Borg, he's, Borg, he's something else besides personal. Here, here, Here's Marcus Borg. Some people think the only two choices are personal God, meaning God is personal, or impersonal God. God is simply a fancy word for, I don't know, the space-time world of matter and energy and maybe throw in dark matter as well. Um, There is a third option. Okay, now, remember, we played part of this lecture from last week. So God is, he thinks there's a third option. My question is, how does he know any of this about God? He rejects the Bible as the word of God. He takes it very seriously, though. But he rejects the Bible as the word of God. But the reality is, is if you really want to know what God's all about, you look at Jesus. And uh, was Jesus personal? Yeah. Was he an impersonal force? No. Did he talk with the Father like the Father was personal? Yeah. Did the Father speak from heaven like he was personal? Yeah. Um, is there any reason to believe that God isn't personal then? No. 
not according to what the Bible has revealed about God. But Marcus Borg is not content with what the Bible teaches. He's got to come up with his own understanding of God. And here it is. Transpersonal. Ah, God's transpersonal. What does that mean? That the sacred is transpersonal, which means more than personal, not less than personal. Ridiculous. And where did you get these ideas, Marcus? How much you want to bet they burbled up from inside his little soul? Just like... This is wonderful. This okay. is awesome. Quick story. Quick story. Uh, I sometimes am involved in public dialogues with conservative evangelical authors and theologians. And some of you know I've done that with Tom Wright. This is not a story about Tom Wright. Okay? This is an event I did in Dallas, I don't know, five years ago or so. 3,000 people. A dialogue with a pit bull conservative evangelical theologian. Now, the article. Now, I, I wonder if this is uh, James White in the, um, the dialogue that he did with Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan back in 2005. I mean, that, I, I think Pitbull is a good way to describe James White. I mean, he is one great debater. All Pitbulls, but this guy is. You know, cheap in his debating techniques, you know, and I could tell you stories about that. And I had decided even before going there, I'm just going to talk to the audience because 90% of them were evangelicals who were there to see their Pitbull demolish me or devour me, I guess is the right metaphor. And... <clears throat> And so, you know, we had this wonderfully acrimonious evening in front of the crowd. It was actually nice. I mean, I never get to talk to evangelicals unless, because they don't show up for me, unless it's a debate with an evangelical. And I love that thing. So anyway, after, you know, this acrimonious evening, we had to share a cab to the airport. (laughs) 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 And he turned out to be a really nice, interesting Italian person. So we're sitting in the back seat together. And he said, Marcus, I want to ask you about your understanding of God. And then he continued, do you think God is conscious? Which is kind of a variation of the personal question. Is God conscious? Well, was Jesus conscious? Jesus is God in human flesh. Was he conscious? Yeah. Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. How the prophets of Baal or Baal were cutting themselves and trying to get the attention of Baal. Apparently, Baal was unconscious. And that was part of what was uh, Elijah's taunt to them. Shout louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Shout louder. Maybe he's on a long journey or maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. And yet, the one true God, Yahweh, seemed the exact opposite of Baal. He was conscious, and he was attentive to the prayer of his servant and his prophet, Elijah, and responded to his prayer. Jesus prays to the Father and tells us that when we pray, we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, all of these kind of um, imply that God is not only conscious, but that he's personal. Yet, apparently, John, uh, I mean, uh, Marcus Borg here, he's, hmm, you know. So he's asked the question by, I think this is James White. I could be wrong, but James White may be asking the question here, whether Marcus Borg's God is even conscious. Let's see what Borg says. I said, well, it all depends on what you mean by conscious. Like, do I imagine that God has to think? Do I imagine? Did you hear that? Do I imagine that God has to think? That's the revealing statement. Marcus Borg believes in the God of his imagination not the God who has revealed himself in Scripture and has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the incarnate deity. Nah, no, no, no. Marcus Borg's God is the God that he imagines. Listen again. I said, well, it all depends on what you mean by conscious. Like, do I imagine that God has to think? Has to figure things out? Has to. Imagine that he has to. Puzzle things through? Make decisions? Like, oh, geez, which way should I go on this one? You know, I mean, when I try to imagine that the word God... Imagine, that's a, when I try to imagine, when I try, imagine. This is all his... Yeah, his God is the God of his imagination. Refers to a conscious reality in that sense. I can't imagine it. And I don't want to limit God to my imagination. But there are some things where I'm not willing to say... He doesn't want to limit God to his imagination. But since he can't imagine, he doesn't want to say that God is conscious or that he's personal. (sighs) Well, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'll believe it. Um, And so I said to him, well... I said, I think it's more true to say that God is conscious rather than to say God is unconscious. Oh, it's more true. Okay, yeah. That that sounds like an equivocation. Sounds like God is passed out or something. (laughs) (laughs) And And that was exactly Elijah's taunt to the prophets of Baal. Make sense of attributing consciousness to God in any way that we use that word about human beings. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I see. Even though man is created in the image of God, he can't imagine that consciousness is one of those things that God has an attribute of God Himself. Because you know, because you know. The God he believes in has to make sense to him. I said, so I'm very willing to say, I think of God as more than conscious. Wow, yeah. And what does that mean exactly? More than conscious. I mean, yeah, you know, usually when I think of the, the term more than, okay, I, I think numerically, I, I think quantitatively. You know, so if uh, you know, somebody were to ask me, uh, Chris, yeah, I see that you have a piggy bank on, on the desk in your studio. Yes, I have a piggy bank here. Yes, I, I do. Thanks for noticing that. Well, um, how much money do you think you have in there? 
Do you think you have more than $5 in the piggy bank on your desk in your studio? Yes, I think I have more than $5. Okay, good. All right, so, um, you know, so the more than, less than category, most of the time we use it quantitatively. And I understand that there's philosophical aspects to using the phrase that makes sense. Um, But, you know, there's certain things that just don't make sense. Am I human? Oh, yes. Am I more than human? You know. Um, Am I less than human? No. Um. Am I more than skinny? Yeah, probably. You understand? So what what exactly, when you use the phrase more than conscious, what does the statement more than supposed to mean? If I say that God is more than conscious or he's more than personal, is he more than good? Is he more than just? Is God... You know, what more than what in what sense is he more than how do you just because you throw the phrase out doesn't make any sense and and where did you get this information anyway marcus i mean cuz it's again over and again it sounds like this is just the god of your imagination, imagination. and why should i believe in the god of your imagination I mean, does your God exist, or does your God more than exist? Even though I don't know what it means to say that. <laughs> so he says that God is more than conscious, but he doesn't know what it means. So I don't want you to get caught in the trap of God is either personal or impersonal. That's apparently a trap. Yeah, It's a trap. Be, be careful. God is either conscious or unconscious. There's a third option. Oh, well, I'm glad that logically there's a third option. But again, how do we, I mean, how do you even know that God is any of those options? God is more than personal. God is more than conscious. Even though he doesn't know what more than personal or more than conscious means, he's fairly certain that that's really the case. And minimally, I would say that would mean God includes consciousness within God's self. God includes the personal within God's self. But to reduce God to a superperson, or to reduce God to a conscious being in the sense that we are conscious, I think that's presumptuous. Uh, it would be presumptuous if all we were doing was speculating. But with the Bible, we have more than speculation. We have revelation. Limited. I prefer to think of God as mystery with a capital M. Oh, that's nice that you prefer to think of God as mystery with a capital M. But don't you think it's kind of odd that God has, um, has well, demystified a lot of, of the things about himself? Especially in the incarnation, don't you think? So there you have it. Um, Marcus Bord's the God of his imagination. And see, that's the point, isn't it? We're not. I, I'm not interested in the God of his imagination, my imagination, or anybody else's imagination. I mean, if that's the case, that God doesn't really exist. Just because I can imagine something doesn't mean that existence automatically follows. The question is, who is the God who is there? 
What is he like? What's his name? How can I know anything about himself? Has he spoken? Has he revealed anything about himself? And the answer to all of those questions is yes, he has. And we find it in the Word of God, and we find it in the incarnate deity, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was personal. Jesus is conscious. If Marcus Borg doesn't know what more than conscious is or more than personal is, chances are they aren't even real categories. But the God that we're going to deal with, the the only God that we have to deal with, the one who actually spoke the world into existence, he is conscious and he is personal. If he's more than that, that's, well, that he hasn't revealed. And I don't even know what more than that would mean, and neither does Marcus Borg. But the one thing I do know with certainty is my imagination has nothing to do with how God really is, and your imagination has nothing to do with how God really is. The question is, how is God really? What is he really like? What are his real attributes? And where can I go to find them? Not, I'm not going to find them in the speculations and musings of Marcus Borg, but I am going to find them in Jesus Christ. I can trust him, and I should be listening to him not Marcus Borg. And what Marcus Borg, with his view of God, why on earth would he be part of a, of, a, of a meeting called Big Tent, quote, Christianity? The God that he believes in is the God of his imagination. That's not the God that's revealed in Christ. Just my point. So at the big tent, apparently the thing that's welcome there is anything and everything that has to do with your the God that you imagine, but not the God that's revealed in Christ, not the one true God. Sad. Very, very sad. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time. This this kind of goes back to my textual narcissism ideas. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. See if you can notice the uh, narcissistic uh, Bible handling here. That's kind of the deal. This is a text that uh, is going to be preached on the uh, transfiguration of our Lord. And uh, weird how he uses it as a pretext to talk about, well, us. Yeah, listen in. Uh, Let's cue up the music. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Northway Church, and I think they are in, uh, let's see, Clifton Park, New York. Pastor Buddy Cremins, uh, uh, or Cremins uh, presiding. The name of the sermon is Just for the Health of It. Health. Just for the Health of It. And uh, he's going to be preaching on a gospel text regarding the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. But um, you're not really going to hear much in reality about what that text is saying or pointing us to really to Jesus. But apparently there's all kinds of psychological self-help stuff just right there in the text that we had no idea about. Um yeah, it's um, this is going to be bizarre. It's going to be uh, one of those things where you, you, know, you might want to put on something to prevent whiplash because your neck is going to you're going to go what and you know you, you could get hurt listening to the sermon. I just want to let you know that. So, um, well, without any further ado, here's Buddy Cremines uh, and the name of the sermon just for the health of it. Let me kill this music. There we go. Here we go. Here's uh, Buddy Cremines.
Welcome to part three of Just for the Healthman. I'm here in New York City, the hub of the world, the mecca of communication. Why am I here? Well, I am here to be a part of a Heart Revolution conference this past week. I had the honor and privilege to talk to many different leaders from around the Northeast, but also around the country. I talked about how to have a healthy heart, how to have a high emotional quotient. You know, in part one, we talked about that we need to take care of this body. How to have a high emotional quotient? Where are emotional quotients uh, discussed in the scriptures? Eh, just... Why? Because God's spirit lives inside. And then last week, I talked about that we need to match God's rhythm of rest. Six in one. Work six days, but then take the seventh day off. Two, honor the Sabbath. God created us to match his rhythm of rest. But today, I want to leverage technology, and I want you to see some of the impact that Northway Church is not just having in the Capital Region and in the Berkshires, but right here in New York City. I know you're going to be challenged. I know you're going to be blessed as we talk about how to raise your emotional quotient, how to have a healthy emotional heart. Well, it sounds great. Jesus took his inner circle, and he took his friends, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And the scriptures tell us in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9 and Luke 9 that he took them on this kind of field trip, this adventurous dream, and it tells us that they went to hike a high mountain. I want you to stop in... An adventurous dream. So the uh, the sermon based upon the transfiguration of our Lord was all about an adventurous dream. Where's all the adventure discussed about? You know, I've read a few adventure novels in my lifetime, and the text regarding Jesus being transfigured, uh, actually none of the texts in the Gospels, it really reads like an adventure story, if you know what I mean. Imagine that. Imagine being Peter, James, and John. Imagine having the privilege and the honor and the opportunity to be with Jesus. Imagine being on this hike and and the, the, the heart is pumping and you're excited because you know that you're ascending and you're ascending to a summit that you've never seen before. As they're getting closer to... I mean, you make it sound like they were climbing Mount Everest. I mean, you know, they've got the oxygen tanks on. And Jesus is all, are you there, boys? And Peter's all, we're here, Lord. Keep going. We're almost to the top. Oh, I don't know if I can make it, Lord. Keep going. Just push through the pain. This, the transfiguration texts don't read anything like this. To the summit. It tells us that something out of this world happened on the top of that mountain. And that's where we're going to pick the scripture up there at Matthew chapter 17. And would you do me a favor and just stand and let's read together. And it tells us this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a what? High mountain. Uh, Yeah, you know what that means? Um, It means that they went up to a high mountain. They went to the, yeah. I mean, this isn't symbolic of anything in your life or my life. It just means they climbed a mountain. 
by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, it's Okay, now tell you what, I'm going to pause right here. I, if you have your Bible, you know, Matthew chapter 17, I, verse 1. I just want to point out a few things about this particular text. And um, see if you, you catch some of it, okay? After six j- days, so you'll notice that this is in the middle of a narrative here. Um, it says after six days. Six days from what? Well, if you go back a chapter uh, to chapter 16, uh, let's see here. Um, let's see. What's the, the bigger context? Okay, uh, verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Hmm. Jesus is asking a question about himself, right? Okay. And, and so they some say John the Baptist. Well, others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, which rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, which rock? The answer is on the rock of his confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. On his confession that Jesus is the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is important, okay? The Christ is a significant term. The Hebrew here would be the Messiah, the anointed one. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. You know, you don't tell nobody. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. Now you get to now you're going to find out exactly why Jesus is not so hip about them telling everybody that he's the Messiah. Uh, one of the reasons why is because at that time, first century Judaism, first century Israel, they're occupied by the Roman uh, by the Roman Empire. Uh, they they are basically ruled and governed by a bunch of pagans. All right, and so they look into they were looking into the Old Testament at the prophecies regarding the Messiah, and they were looking specifically at the prophecies regarding the Messiah flexing some muscle, if you would. Uh, expelling the evildoer, judging those who bring sin, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And those are prophecies regarding the Messiah, to be certain, but those are in reference to his second coming, not his first. And so they weren't looking at the passages like Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. They weren't looking at the suffering servant passages, they were, they were really looking for the, uh, you know, the Messiah to come in and to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, to set up his 
awesome, holy, mega kingdom here on earth and to show those rascally pagan Gentiles who's boss, that kind of stuff, okay? So Jesus warns them strictly, don't tell nobody I'm the Messiah. And then from that time on, he begins to explain to him, to them that he has to go to Jerusalem and that he will be killed and on the third day be raised again. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Let that one sink in. Peter rebukes Jesus. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me repeat what Jesus said. You are not setting your mind on the things of God but you are setting your mind on the things of man. Now, as you listen to the sermon, ask yourself this question. Is Pastor Buddy here setting his mind on the things of God or on the things of man? This is, this is an important distinction. So then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So now chapter 17. And after six days, six days after Jesus reveals to them in no uncertain terms that he is the Messiah and begins to teach them that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. This is the suffering servant passages regarding the prophecies of the Messiah to be fulfilled. Okay, he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and John his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Pause here for a second. Let that sink in. Who is this Jesus? For a moment, Jesus' glory pops out and they begin to see things in a different light. Who is this man? Not only do the wind and the waves obey him, not only do demons obey his every command, not only does he give sight to the blind, does he give the ability to walk to paralytics, and he forgives sins, and now all of a sudden, boom. He's transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, we can make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard the voice, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but Jesus only. This whole narrative that begins, you know, well, you know, this section, this the overall, this immediate context begins with the confession that you are the Son of God by Peter, and Jesus saying he's going to build his church on that confession that Peter just gave, that he, Jesus, is the Son of the Living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now we get to see Jesus's glory for just a moment. Who is it that we're dealing with here? Who is it? This is none other than God in human flesh. And God the Father says, listen to him. And then the text ends, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Do you think this has any implication as to who pastors are supposed to be preaching about? You bet it does. But let's see what um, Pastor Buddy does with this text and who he ends up focusing in on. Are we going to listen to and focus in on, on Jesus? Well, let's see what he does. It's a rush enough to go on a little recreation. It's a rush enough and adrenaline. I'm telling you, if you've never been, as you get top to the mountain, you can't wait to see it. And it's a rush enough that you have this quality time with Jesus. You don't have to share Jesus. And they're having this conversation and dialogue. Then they reach the summit of Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is in the lower part of Galilee, about 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. And they're looking out over it all. And then all of a sudden, Jesus has an extreme supernatural makeover and then they beam down god beams down moses and elijah can you imagine being them here is moses and elijah your childhood heroes man what must what must they been thinking and then peter says this peter said to jesus lord it is good for us to be here If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What does Peter do? Peter does what all of us would do. Peter does what all of us do at those mountain moments, at those summits of success, and he says, wow, this... Summits of success? What? Notice he's already allegorizing the text. The allegories... This allegorization that people engage in, it's the first step that you need to do in order to to wrestle the text away from it being about Christ and turn it into something about you. Is it? This is why I was born. This is why I signed up for God. This is why I wanted to follow Jesus. This is the reason and everything that I've been dreaming about to get on top of a high mountain. Look at me, not the other disciples who are here. It is just Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. Look at me. 
Christ, and now we see Moses, and now we see Elijah. It is good to be me. This is a good day in Peter's life. This is a really, really good day. It doesn't get much better than that. And so what happens? Peter jumps in, as all of us would do, on those pinnacle peaks and those summits of success, and he says this. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll build the shelters. I'll build a memorial. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And listen to this in verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. While he was still speaking, who was speaking? As Peter was telling Jesus, It is good to be me. It is good to be here. Let's just stay here. God the Father interrupts Peter and he says, listen to my son. Do not interrupt him. Do not take him off vision. Do not take him off mission. What is Peter? What? The text doesn't say anything about the father saying to Peter, don't take him off vision. Don't take him off mission. That's flat-out eisegesis. That's reading something into the text that ain't there. Wow, we're now inventing words uh, regarding what the Father said. Hmm. Peter do. Peter has a depends moment. You know what I'm talking about? You better have his depends on because this is what happens. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. But Jesus came and touched them and he said, get up. And then he said, what church? He said, don't be afraid. Don't tell anyone what you have seen. All right. And as they were coming, what church? Down the mountain. One more church? Down the mountain. Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't be afraid. Go ahead, church. We've got to speak it, and we've got to use our words. And these are the words of Jesus, and he says, don't be afraid, church. And why? We're going back down the mountain. Don't be afraid. We're going back down the mountain. Right here in this passage, Jesus gives us some... Don't be afraid. We're going back down the mountain. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but Jesus only. Doesn't say anything about, okay, let's go back down the mountain. Notice he's, he's already starting to slip into this allegorization of the text. He's he's turning it into some kind of a metaphor, up the mountain, down the mountain. And there's there's senses in which you can kind of work the text this way, but if it doesn't point us back to Christ so that we see only him, we've got a big problem. Let's see where Buddy goes with this next. Metaphor for our lives. And he gives us a metaphor for our ministry. All of us, the heart revolution is about ascending. It's about going to elevations that you have never been to before. And it's about God waking up that heart and dreaming in big, huge Ephesians 3.20 dreams. And it's about... This text isn't about dreaming big Ephesians 3.20 dreams at all. So notice, this text is all about Christ. Who I mean, they have just seen something remarkable. 
Jesus in his glory, a glimpse of it for just a second. Moses and Elijah show up. God the Father speaks and says, listen to him. And now all of a sudden we're off into something about you? Dreaming big dreams? That doesn't belong in this text at all. And it takes my eyes off of Jesus and puts my eyes squarely back on me. I'm the problem. Jesus is God. He's the solution. Oh, boy. Experiencing those summits. But listen, don't miss this. It's about ascending church. It's about summiting and seeing a view you've never seen before, that you get a taste of God that you've never experienced before, that you're closer to God's presence than you've ever had before, that you don't want to leave that moment and you just want to bottle it up and you just want to drink it. And we have those moments and we just want to bathe in it and we just want to be with God and we just want to stay on the mountain. But don't miss this church. Don't be afraid because you've got to go back down the mountain. In life, it's a continual process of going up the mountain and down the mountain, up the mountain and down the mountain. Think about it. When you were born and you came into this world, guess what happened? You left your mother's womb. Life is a process of ascending and elevating, but also a process of loss. Up the mountain and down the mountain, ascending and descending. And you came out, and you were just glad to be here, but guess what? Then you went down the mountain because you will never return to your mother's womb again. And you grew and you grew. And then you looked to kindergarten and you climbed the mountain. Someday I'll be in kindergarten. And you make it to kindergarten. It was incredible. But then you look up and what happens? You look up to elementary and you're like, wow, those kids are so big. And what happens? I thought I made it kindergarten. I got to go back down the mountain. Then you get in fifth and sixth grade. And then you look up to ninth graders like they're just the... Is this text... Any is this about being born, kindergarten or any of that stuff, the the up and downs of life? This text is about Jesus being the Son of God. Here we have the ultimate revelation who Jesus is, that he is actually God in human flesh, and you're talking about kindergarten? You have God the Father saying, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And we're in, you're not pointing us to him. You're pointing us to ourselves and our little life experiences and the ups and downs in life. And t- basically saying that this text is a metaphor about our lives. This isn't a metaphor about our lives. This is the real history about the life of the Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And you're talking about kindergarten the baddest people on the earth and you look up to them and you climb up and you climb up and then what happens you look at high school then you got to go back down the mountain then you finally you climb and you climb and you climb and, and you get there and you've graduated dun, 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 yeah Wow, you've made it, another mountaintop. But then what happens? You look at college and career, and guess what, people? You got to go back down the mountain. 
And then you're in those 20s and you're grooving and you see that babe and you see that hunk and you've got a, you've got a twinkle and a sparkle and you're in your eye and you're like, wow. I want that person in my life. And so you put your best foot forward and you're like, man, I'm going to impress. I'm going to do everything I can. And then she rejects you and you got to go back down the mountain. <laughs> then you, you regroup and you climb and you climb. And then she says yes. And then you propose to her and then you get married. Oh, it's awesome. You're at the mountaintop. You're at the mountaintop. Let's just stay here. But then what happens? Marriage. You got to go back down the mountain. Then you're in marriage and then you're in marriage and you're cooking along and all this. And you. This text, Matthew 17, is not written as a metaphor about your life. Notice by doing that, he's completely taking our eyes off of Jesus. And yet verse 8 says, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. The way this guy's preaching it, we see everybody but Jesus. You get that sparkle in your eye again. You're like, wow, it'd be great to sort of have one of us. And then your wife gets pregnant. You climb the mountain. It's awesome. Nine months. You're excited. Wow, you're going to Lamaze class. You cannot wait to the birth of your little baby. And then what happens? Then they're born. Ear infections. They're up all night. You're back down the mountain. Life is a process of climbing mountains and going back down the mountains. Listen to what scripture says in Ecclesiastes. Help me out, church. It says this. There is a time for what church for? Let's say it again. For everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to what church? A time to? And a time to laugh. And a time to what church? And a time to? Let's say this again. Come on, church. And a time to? Mourn. And a time to? Dance. I want to talk to you today about going back down the mountain. A heart revolution, you've got to have a strong heart. And you've got to have a heart full of faith to ascend. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to ascend. You've got to have a heart. This isn't about Jesus at all. So notice, a text that's all about Christ and who he is, and with the ability to unpack that and to really give glory to who Jesus is because he's God in human flesh. You could talk about the Trinity. You could talk about the glory of God. You can talk about Christ's death and suffering. You could talk about the fact that the apostles saw nobody but Jesus. And you would be handling this text correctly, but instead it's now about me. My life's ups and downs, the summits, the valleys, the, the ups and the downs, the big and you know, the small, the, the great and the bad. This text is about Jesus. To dream big dreams, to see those accomplished and summit. But life, Scripture tells us, is a process of going up the mountain and down the mountain. And I want to ask everybody to look into their soul and ask yourself, how are you doing going back down the mountain? Seriously. This is the what? Look into my soul. How am I doing going down the mountain? It does. uh, Unbelievable. Uh, Oh, this has nothing to do with that. How are you doing going back down the mountain? Life is a process 
of gain, but also loss. And we've got to realize that there is a time and purpose for every season under heaven. Turn to the person next to you and say, there is a reason for the season you're in. Go ahead, church. That passage from Ecclesiastes is not a cross-reference to this passage in Matthew. Oh, man. Yeah, but see, we can't make it about Jesus because, no, Jesus is just a supporting actor in our life movie. He's there to help us, to inspire us, to climb the mountain, and and then to be careful going down the mountain. (sighs) There is a reason for the season that you are in. Notice this word in Scripture, it says to mourn, that there's a time and there's a purpose for you to grieve. What does grieve mean? What does mourn mean? It means to express loss. So God created us in his image as an emotional being, that we have these emotions inside of us, but part of being like our God is we need to be able to express loss. That's what mourning and that's what grieving means. We have to be careful when we're coming back down the mountain, church, because if you don't know the terrain, you will have such an emotional high. You will be so pumped at your camp experience, your conference experience, your worship experience or whatever. But when you come back down, I'm talking you can fall and I'm talking you can die. More people die, not ascending Mount Everest, but descending. That's what the raw data says. And uh, Mount Everest isn't mentioned in this text. Nor is it talk, no, nor anywhere in this text is Jesus saying, now be careful going down the mountain so you don't die. God says, I want you to be equipped to ascend, to summit, but also to come back down the mountain. Don't be afraid. We're going back down the mountain. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're going back down the mountain. Check this out. Depression... is defined as the inability to express loss. Depression is the... This text isn't about depression. What are you doing? The inability to express loss. Go back to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time and purpose to grieve, to express loss. But if you don't know how to express loss, and if you don't have permission to express loss, and if you're so spiritual that you take your little vitamin verse and you think you're going to hydroplane over pain in your life, God says, I've given pain for a reason, and when it happens, I want you to express it, and I want you to let it out. Because What? What are you talking about? You read a text about Jesus' transfiguration, and now you're saying that God has revealed that he wants me to, you know, express pain and let it out? What are you talking about? Because if you don't, church, you will stay stuck and you will drown and you'll find yourself drowning and in depression. Depression is the inability to express Loss. Some of you here today, you're like, wow, man, I wish you're talking about something else. I wish you'd fire me up on something else. You know what? I'm all good, buddy. I don't have to worry about it because I'm going to go from mountain to mountain to mountain to mountain to mountain. And you're exactly who I want to talk to because if you are not careful, you are going to end up as a staggering statistic because you cannot just go against God's word. You can't just say.
you're not even preaching God's word. This isn't even a coherent biblical thought that you're preaching here, sir. Say, wow, I'm just going to jump from here to here to here to here, and I don't ever have to go down a mountain. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Yes, I'm going to take you, and you're going to go to new places than you've ever been, but you're going to summit, and you're going to see things. Yeah, when Jesus said, don't be afraid, he wasn't talking about depression. He wasn't talking about mountaintop experiences. He wasn't talking about any of that stuff. They were afraid because they heard the voice of the Father. The whole event was, say, out of the ordinary in revealing who Jesus is. He is God. He's the Son. And God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And they saw no one but him. When Jesus said, do not fear, he wasn't talking about, oh, don't worry about your life's little experiences and your ups and the downs and the, and the peaks and the valleys and the mountains and the, and, and the bunny rabbits and the deer and the, and the brooks. And not, he wasn't talking about any of that stuff. But see, that's the first step, isn't it? As soon as you turn the Bible into a metaphor about your life, you, you make it so that you don't see Jesus anymore. The only person you see is you. And the only person you hear is you. This text isn't about you. This text is about Jesus from beginning to end. Ugh. We continue. But don't be afraid because I'm going to take you down the mountain. We've got to have permission to express loss. Between you and God, you air it all out. David was a man after God's own heart. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Look at the Psalms. All he did was air loss. God, my enemies. So the reason why, man, this is just ridiculous now. The reason why David is a man after God's own heart is because he can air loss. Yeah, you're not going to find a uh, single passage of Scripture that actually says that. God, take them out. God, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see how they hurt me? My God, my God, my God, my God. And the Psalms are packed with that. And God says, that's a man that has a heart revolution because he's a man after my own heart because he brings everything to me. Uh, the Bible doesn't say this. We've got to know the terrain. I want to just, just talk to you really, really quick, guys, really, really quick on how do you know the terrain. God says don't suppress, express. Turn to the person. Don't suppress, express. Really, where does the Bible say that? person next to you say don't suppress, express. Go ahead, church. Don't suppress. And what does this have to do with the transfiguration passage we read again? Yeah, it doesn't. Press, express. You've got to know the terrain. So let's talk about loss. And let's talk about how to identify the terrain. So when you're coming back down the mountain and when I'm coming back down the mountain, we know how to express it healthy and we don't get stuck there. All right. There's a, one type of loss. It's concrete loss. Concrete loss. And where is this concrete loss mentioned again in this passage about Jesus's transfiguration? These are cinder blocks. It helps me remember. Thank you for my amazing artwork. But that helps me remember. And I'll never forget now because I have a little word picture there. Concrete loss. What's concrete loss? Concrete loss is something tangible. Concrete loss is, you know what? 
My house burnt down. Wow, that's a lot to grieve. God says, go ahead and mourn that. You lose a spouse. You lose a child. Man, that is real grief. And God says there's a time and purpose, and he gives you permission to grieve, and you express that loss. Here's what's interesting in our culture. Our culture gives us permission to express concrete loss. But there's another type of loss. Abstract. Draw a little paint here because that makes me think. Of abstract. Abstract loss, church, is intangible. Abstract loss, and this is where we got to be really, really careful. It's so much harder to quantify and identify. Abstract loss is something that's intangible. Abstract loss is when you've gone through a divorce. Abstract loss is when someone lied about you. Abstract loss is when someone's been talking trash about you. Abstract loss is when there's betrayal. Abstract loss is something that, man, you just can't quantify. But make no mistake, our mind doesn't know the difference, and it's saying something is wrong. God says, go ahead and grieve that, and you've got to be able to say what it is, what happened, what they took from you, and go ahead and take it to God and air it all out. God, this is what was taken. This is what happened. This is what was stolen from me. I want to bring it all to you, God, and I'm going to air it all out. God, I hope you see. I hope you take care of it. I'm trusting. But don't suppress. Express both. This is just psychology. This isn't biblical teaching. Concrete loss and abstract loss. We must know the terrain. Here's where it gets really tricky. Imagine loss. Um, is this like imagined Christian doctrine? Like, like this is what this is, right? This this is just imagining to be Christian to- doctrine. This is just imagining to be an actual biblical preaching, right? You know. Imagine loss. All oh, those people are talking about me. Oh, you see what's going on in the church over there? I think there's something going on there. Imagine loss. Imagine loss is a threat to you, and it's imagine. Don't miss this. Who did Jesus go up on and, and have beamed down because he wanted to see them, and they were his closest friends in glory? I want to hang out with Moses and Elijah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Beam them down. Yeah, this is an obviously the transfiguration was like a s- episode of Star Trek, and and you know, and the reason why is because well, Moses and Elijah, those were his two of Jesus's best buddies, and they were from the mothership, and so God, you know, the Father had them beam down just so that Jesus could chill with them. Okay, what did Elijah battle with? Elijah went to the mountain. Elijah had the biggest victory of his life. And then he went running and he fell down the mountain. Why? Because of imagined loss of some woman named Jezebel that did a threat to him. And he went. Uh, that, we- that wasn't imagined loss. That was a full on threat against his actual physical person. Oh, man. Heels off. 
Listen, don't miss this. With imagined loss, if you don't know the terrain, when you're descending, you will trip and fall. If you get caught up in imagined loss, this is why God says in Scripture, guard your mind. This is why God says in Scripture, take every thought into captivity and go through Scripture. This is why God says, renew your mind. Because once the enemy takes us to imagined loss, he is setting us up for a major, major fall. Oh, no. Really? And where does the Bible say any of this nonsense? Yeah, actually, it doesn't say any of this nonsense anywhere because this is nonsense. And Elijah, because of Jezebel, a threat. And don't miss this. We cannot grieve something that has never happened. Boy, they're all worked up about this. I don't even if you were to ask them what, what it is he's talking about, I'm pretty sure they couldn't tell you. You can't grieve it. And consequently, we find ourselves stuck in depression. What was taken from you? What was stolen from you? Who abused you? We don't like to go to the pain, and I get that. It's a very sensitive issue. But I'm challenging you and I'm encouraging you for a heart revolution, not just to ascend, not just to have the summit, but to have a healthy heart. You've got to be able to say, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm coming back down the mountain and I need to express all of that to you, God. And God, if I'm going to any imagined loss, I pray you convict me. I want to get right back on track. So God, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of imagined loss. Yeah. And the quicker that we can identify the terrain, the quicker we can then summit another mountain. The quicker then God can take us to a new place we've never been. I have a question for you. Who was the Mount Transfiguration for? Well, I was taught in Bible college. You read the Scholars, they tell you that Mount's Transfiguration was all just for Peter, James, and John. For them just to catch a little glimpse of God's glory. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus announces for the very first time he predicts his death. Very first time. He also says in Matthew 16, the cost of being my disciple is you're going to have to lose everything. Not some things, but lose everything. And he goes up on that mountain and consider who he talks to, Moses and Elijah. Why? Who was the Mount Transfiguration for? I think we can find out in Scripture in Luke 9 and verse 31. Luke 9, 31. Luke 9, 31 is another account of Mount Transfiguration. It says they were glorious to see. It's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And they were speaking about his what church? About his exodus. Let's say it again. About his exodus from this world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Who was Mount Transfiguration for? It wasn't for Peter. It wasn't for James and it wasn't for John. It was because the Son of God was God in his glory, but also was God in human form. He was one of us, and he felt what we felt, and he knew he was about to go to the cross. And so I believe he he called Moses and Elijah to say, hey, talk me through this. Let's talk about this. Hey, Elijah, how'd that feel? 
how that how that feel? And more ice to Jesus. So Jesus was there basically asking, hey, you know, how how did it feel when uh when Jezebel wanted to kill you, you know, because so it's all there. You know, the, the reason the question was being asked was basically for uh, Jesus' sake. Oh, man. Feel when you had that loss. Hey, Moses, how'd that feel when you're hanging out 40 years in the desert and you were just out there and everybody forgot? How did that? Yeah, notice how he's just psychologizing Jesus' sufferings and death. That feel. Because I'm about to go and express loss like I've never done before. Because all I've experienced, and yes, I'm omnipotent, but all I've experienced is God's glory in the past. I created everything, and by my hand, everything was made. I've got a lot to process because I'm just sort of getting in this groove with human form right now. I'm just... Cue sappy music. It's kind of getting used to people disrespecting me. I'm used to people, I'm used to the angels saying, holy, holy, holy art thou Lord, God Almighty, 24-7. And now I'm clothed in skin and I'm disrespected and people reject me. And I'm just trying to help people. I'm trying to help them heal. And now. How is this a good word? This is ridiculous. Moses and Elijah, tell me, because I'm about to go to some place I've never been before. I'm about to go down the mountain. I'm about to go down the mountain, and I already know that Peter and James and John, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and they'll fall asleep, but Judas will still be up. Because the adversary never sleeps. And I know that I'm going to go. And then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane Church. And I don't want to shock you. But we hear these little stories of Jesus our whole life. And you know what? Oh, it's just Jesus. And he died on a cross and he rose again. And it's salvation. I live for him and spend eternity and build his church. Yada, yada, yada. All that boring salvation stuff. No. Jesus did not have to do it. And he worked it out, church, in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do? He worked it out in prayer. And he said, my God, my God, I don't want to do this. My God, my God, I'd much rather be back in my glory. My God, my God, my Father, Abba, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he grieved. And he had anguish. So this is the psychological gospel, the psychological theory of the atonement. And he sweat drops of blood. It wasn't just a little verse. My God, he was crying out to God, his father. Let this cup pass from me. And he expressed it all because he knew what loneliness felt like. He knew what betrayal felt like. He knew that he was going to have to carry that cross by himself and go up Golgotha and carry that cross alone. But friends, don't miss this. He worked it out on his knees. 80% of all suicides are from men. What? What does suicide have to do with this? If you're 35, congratulations, it just went up three times. If you're 65, congratulations, it just went up seven times. What happens is when we don't process loss and we don't get comfortable getting into God's groove, you've talked me here, you're taking me down, expressing and leaning into it. What happens is we're just going to play and pretend and we 
medicate the pain. And then we jump to the other mountain and we fool ourselves through alcohol, through drugs, through pornography, through whatever, through food. Just medicate. Aren't those just sins? Medicate the pain. Because if I medicate the pain, I don't have to go to the loss. (laughs) What does that sentence even mean? We've got to understand the terrain. We've got to understand that you've got permission to grieve. And God in heaven, he's not shocked, and he just says, I'm glad you're talking to me. Now that you're talking, I can heal you. There it was. I don't know what it is that we just heard. I have no idea what any of that medicating the pain and up and down the mountain and grieving and uh, all that had anything to do with the passage from the Mount of Transfiguration. But then again, that's just standard par for the course nowadays in preaching. Yeah, it, it has absolutely zilch, zero, nada, nothing to do with what the text actually says or what the text actually is about. We just allegorize it, metaphorize it, and and then we turn it and twist it so that it's about us and not about Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's not how to properly handle God's Word. And what gets lost? The biblical gospel. That's what gets lost. Did you hear a clear proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Did you hear the law correctly handled to convict you of your sins and show you your need for a Savior and for the forgiveness and mercy won by Christ? Did you hear about the imputed righteousness of Christ? Did you hear any—I mean, aside from what you read in the text, which was then quickly turned into something about you and then psychologized, and I've never heard of the— um, I've I've never heard this theory of the atonement before, the, the self-help, psychologized uh, theory of the atonement that we just heard. But, I mean— th- What's the point of having the Bible if you're not actually going to study and listen to what it says and what it's about? It you know, just makes me wonder. Um, have all these years of small group studies trained up an entire generation of pastors who think that the right way to handle God's Word is to, is to answer the question, what does it mean to me? Because apparently all, all of the Bible's supposedly about you. And the Mount of Transfiguration passage there in the Gospel of Matthew, it ain't about you. That's all that we heard today is you, 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 and then all these psychological problems. And and then God wants you to, you know, express and rather than depress or whatever the slogan that the pastor came up with. But, I mean, this this wasn't biblical teaching. And the text that he read didn't teach any of this nonsense that he somehow found uh, magically in, the, in in this text. It wasn't there. And yet... This way of mishandling God's word seems to be the norm rather than than the exception nowadays. And it's a problem because Christ and the clear proclamation of the gospel are the things that are being obscured and being obscured in such a way that we're talking about people being in danger of the fires of hell for never for basically going to church but their church killing them, going to church but their church sending them to hell. That's what we're talking about. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. If you'd like to partner with us financially, you can do so. Our email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be our friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. 
and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. You heard of that? Yeah. Probably not in your church. Amen. Amen.